listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for spending some of your time with us this hour. License plates from the government who brought you stickers who do not stick. We now have license plates that are largely invisible. And reports now that Mothers Against Drunk Driving Canada now asking the Ontario government to review the problem with its license plate. Mad Canada saying in a statement that nighttime visibility issues being reported by police and the public are very very serious. Not to mention, we have reports from the city of Toronto that the license plates cannot be read by photo radar. These new photo radar stations that we're putting in areas of the city, trying to make it a little less deadly for us pedestrians trying to cross the road, that well, the photo radar can't read them. The Ontario miracle. It's not a miracle. It's not, Premier. Andrew Horvath on this radio station earlier this morning says we have a crunchy situation here. You know, the photo radar project, whether you like it or you don't, uh, might be, be rendered ineffective because you can't see the word Ontario. Look, you know, Ford got us into this pickle. Uh, he needs to tell us what the plan is to get us out of it. Pickle. Oh, what a right pickle we're in. We are in a pickle. Oh, what a right pickle we're in. It's, it's a pickly situation. Oh, what a right pickle we're in. We're in a pickle. So. Right pickle we're in. We're in a pickle, and who's handling the questions here? Who is handling this situation? It's the return of Lisa Thompson, the absolute worst communicator on the government front bench, the woman who was shuffled out of education, the minister who was booted from education because she made such a mess of that. Now they put her in this new port, this other portfolio, and they okay, that's it'll be all good here. And now we have license plates. This is what the minister, by the way, we're in a pickle. This is what the minister had to say uh, yesterday when pressed about this pickle. The flaking and peeling liberal plates were not an option to stick with. What? That is, it is absolutely ridiculous to suggest that this is the, it's not even the liberals. It wasn't even the liberals. And to be able to try and blame, it's Kathleen Wynne's fault, by the way. Just in case any problem you have right now. How many more years do you think this government's going to be able to just trot that bad boy out? I mean, you know, come the next election, people are not going to vote on whether or not they like Kathleen Wynne. They already did that. Let's get back to the House this morning. The minister in the House asked again, and today, listen to this, what is not said here. This is Lisa Thompson in the House answering questions about the license plates. We have been made aware of the concerns. We are listening and we're continuing to work with the manufacturer, stakeholders, and the public through this process. We are listening. No mention of liberal plates, no status quo, no peeling, just that. She was asked a couple of times about it. She went right back to that talking point. We have been made aware of the concerns. We are listening. And then what happens at the end of question period is the ministers then all come out and they stand before a unimic. This is a relatively new development in the last couple of last year or so. They used to just come out and get scrum, like so you know, like you know, rugby scrum, we'd all kind of press in on them. But now they stand there by a unimic, and one by one the ministers come out and they take the questions. Right now, Stephen Lecce is talking to the press. 
That is the Minister of Education, the current Mark, Minister of Education. I am focused on this like a laser. And he is focused like a laser. If you listen yesterday on the program, when the Premier was asked, why don't you fire Minister Lecce, considering the problems with the education sector, he said he's focused like a laser. It's like a laser. Like a laser. Like a laser on a pickle. That's what's happening. Well, I can tell you reports from the Queen's Park Press Gallery is that Lisa Thompson has exited a back way. She's gone out the back door. She's Basically what she's done is she's donned a new Ontario license plate and turned invisible. You see? So she doesn't have to answer any more questions. But let's get back to the central thing here, the, the, the new sort of development that is kind of making the rounds today, which is this assertion that there is a problem with the new with these new uh, plates when it comes to photo radar in the city of Toronto. The mayor, John Tory, held a long press conference this morning. In fact, John Tory never holds a short press conference. It's never happened in his political career. The man just does not stop talking. He really doesn't. But nevertheless, he was asked about the license plates. First of all, he says, I don't care about the license plates. Not, not, not interesting to me. And then was asked... Okay, wait a second. Is there actually a problem with the photo radar? Did the province consult, like the minister has said, did the province actually consult with the city about that? John Tory? I don't think there was a particular consultation vis-a-vis red light cameras or photo radar, but I'm also not aware that there's a problem. I think there's been speculation about a problem, but as I say, if it turns out there is one, then we will work with them very carefully and with the supplier and with the province and we'll solve it. Uh, But uh, I'm not aware there actually is a problem at the moment, just some speculation that I've seen in the news. Okay, so it's just a speculation. So uh, are we in one or we are not? Oh, what a right pickle we're in. Are we in a pickle or not? I don't know. Oh, what a right pickle we're in. I'm not sure about the pickle. Because now we have John Tory saying he doesn't think that there's a problem, but he doesn't have any evidence of it. He doesn't know one way or the other. But, you know, hey, listen, we'll all, it'll all work itself out. No problem. Now, going on at City Hall today, and this is important to keep your eye on, too. The $13.53 billion operating budget and a $43.46 billion 10-year capital budget are up for debate. I believe that the operating budget has been passed. That's just in the last couple of minutes. Keep my eye on that. But uh, let's circle back on that to get absolute confirmation on it. But it includes a 2% property tax hike. And that number is a bit deceiving, though, because it's not 2%. Because you say to yourself, well, that's kind of inflation number. What do you? Okay, fine. The number is actually 4.24%. That's an average of $106 more for homeowners. That's because they have that extra building levy that the city approved back in December. So, property tax is going up 4.24%. That's off your cash. That's your bottom line. That's the bottom line of so many people struggling to hold on to their homes. Seniors. People on fixed incomes. It's extraordinarily difficult. It's an expensive city and it's becoming more expensive. Now... You may say this is absolutely required. That's what the mayor says. And he was pressed about this today. And I want you to listen carefully to this next thing that John Tory says. Because sometimes when politicians talk, they, they say things that they don't necessarily mean to say or had they haven't intended to say. And in this answer here, when pressed about whether or not the people of Toronto truly want and truly will accept a 4.24% property tax increase... John Tory makes an astounding announcement in the middle of this. Listen to this. 
the electorate of the city, the citizens who live here, will have their chance in three years to pass judgment. If they don't like it, then they'll tell me, thank you very much, uh, and we'll send you packing. If they do like it, then they'll put me back in office. Wait, wait a second. Did John Tory just announce his re-election campaign? If they do like it, then they'll put me back in office. Is that what happened right there? That is a weird way to say I'm going to do it again. Because up to this point, John Tory has said, well, I haven't decided. He kind of, you know, he's been waffling on it. So you know what? You know what good is good with pickle? Waffle. And here, when pressed on that, because immediately after saying that, every, every reporter in the room said, wait a second. Wait a minute. Are you running for re-election? And here is a hot waffle. No, but I've just said if I am, then if people want to be assessing my record, they will have a chance. They'll have the ultimate chance to do that, which happens almost nowhere else. What What does it? No, I didn't say I was running again. You just said, you just said that people can send me packing if they don't like this tax increase. And now when you, what does that mean? You're running again? No, I, no, I didn't say that. Well, that's a right pickle is what that is. Welcome back to the program. Time for an update on coronavirus. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's not what it's called. What's it called again? COVID-19. COVID-19. Right. Now, how do you... C-O-V-I-D hyphen one nine. COVID-19. All right. Let's get you the updated information as this story continues to develop and Canadians involved. Of course, new virus cases in China are continuing to fall as protective suit clad inspectors are going door to door in Wuhan right now trying to find every infected person. Wuhan is now on its final day of a campaign to root out anyone with symptoms who authorities may have missed so far. Mainland China, new numbers reporting 1,700 new cases and 136 additional deaths as a result of COVID-19. Meanwhile, about 500 passengers left the Diamond Princess cruise ship in Yokohama, Japan today after the two-week quarantine period failed to stop the spread of COVID-19. Japanese health officials announcing 79 more cases on that ship. The total now, 621. 43 Canadians at least have been infected with COVID-19 on that ship. Some experts are calling the Diamond Princess a perfect virus incubator. Obviously, that has been an abject failure to try and quarantine those people on the ship. Ottawa has said there's a plane on the way to bring Canadians home. Still, though, not clear when those Canadians will actually leave Japan. We're staying on top of that story. But who would have guessed that quarantining a whole bunch of people on a boat with a incredibly difficult-to-stamp-out virus would be a bad idea. It seems like it was just obvious from the get-go that it would have been wiser to just get them all off the boat into a quarantine area, separated. Meanwhile, you got staff members going door-to-door, 
handing food between the doors and, you know, all the rest. And remember, like, last week or the week before when we were, you know, doing Skype interviews with people on the boat, and it was kind of a laughable situation. In fact, you know, there was reports of, you know, Japanese troops coming by and entertaining the people with balconies and doing, you know, doing stuff. And, well, it's not a laughing matter anymore. This from the Wall Street Journal this morning. China has revoked the press credentials of three Wall Street Journal reporters based in Beijing, the first time in the post-Mao era that the Chinese government has expelled multiple journalists from one international news organization at the same time. China's foreign ministry said the move was punishment for a recent opinion piece published by the Wall Street Journal. It was an opinion piece published on February the 3rd, which referred to China as, quote, the real sick man of Asia. That was in the headline. These journalists who have been expelled had nothing to do with that headline. Meanwhile, a respected Japanese virologist said if the Tokyo Olympics were to be held tomorrow, the Games probably could not be held because of the fast-spreading virus. The local Tokyo Olympic Organizing Committee and the IOC have repeatedly said over the last few weeks they will listen to the World Health Organization, but that the games will go on. Difficult to see how that would happen under the current situation, but we are, of course, months away from the games in July. Many things can happen between now and then, but interesting to note that if it was now, and if things do not get better, if it is possible that they could get worse, there could be a real impact on the Olympic Games. I mean, you think about all the training, all the, you know, the qualifying events that have to happen in advance of the Games themselves. Those can be impacted pretty quickly, and the clock is ticking. Let's move to an update on the blockade situation around the country. Here's an update. A group of protesters have now set up a blockade on the West Edmonton CN rail line. That happened this morning. It's on the CN tracks. That's according to the staff sergeant with the Edmonton police. A car, some wooden pallets, all on the rail line with signs that read, no consent and no pipelines on stolen land. Meanwhile, in Ottawa, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on his way into the Liberal caucus meeting. Listen to what he had to say this morning. A slight change in tone from yesterday's let's all hug it out, everybody together, we're here to talk. A little bit of a stronger message here from the Prime Minister about how this is unacceptable. This government is working extremely hard to resolve this situation. Uh, We know that people are facing shortages, they're facing disruptions, they're facing layoffs. That's unacceptable. That's why we're going to continue working extremely hard with everyone involved to resolve the situation as quickly as possible. That is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on his way into the Liberal caucus meeting today. Meanwhile, yesterday afternoon, Trudeau held a meeting with the other leaders, with the exception of Andrew Scheer. He said Andrew Scheer had disqualified himself by, from what he had said in, during his speech in the House of Commons. Mr. Scheer began his rebuttal to the Prime Minister's quote-unquote word salad by calling it the weakest response to a national crisis in Canadian history, and then went on to say the following, and I'll read this quote to you. This is the quote from Andrew Scheer speaking in the House of Commons yesterday. Standing between our country is a small group of activists, many of whom have little to no connections to First Nations communities. 
a bunch of radical activists who will not rest until our oil and gas industry is shut down. It is the term radical activists that has raised the ire of many across this nation, even though it is clear that what Mr. Scheer said about protesters having little to no connection to First Nations communities being involved in a number of protests, and I'm not speaking of the one of east of Belleville, but I'm speaking of the ones that have happened in downtown Toronto and other cities across the nation at rail, or sorry, at uh, bridge crossings. So what becomes difficult here is to try and understand what is the difference between an elected council, and a hereditary chief. And this is something I didn't know a lot about, to be honest. And I think the nation itself is beginning to try and understand this and grapple with this, because you may have heard on the conservative side saying that every elected band council that this pipeline in northern British Columbia crosses is in favor of the project. So if that is the case... Who is it that is protesting? And what constituency do they have? Well, I want to read for you an article from First Nations Drum, Canada's largest First Nations newspaper. Filed this back February 4th of last year, but it's an interesting explainer here. The Wet'suwet'en Nation is made up of five clans and within those 13 houses. The five hereditary chiefs representing the clans are all opposed to the pipeline, while the elected council has given it the go-ahead. Hereditary chiefs are often recognized as traditional knowledge keepers and in some contexts are recognized as having a greater authority and rights relative to things like traditional territory or cultural knowledge and tradition. But it varies from community to community. And it's contested even within communities. Elected chiefs and council generally hold authority over reserved lands, and infrastructure. Traditional chiefs oversee the territories and hold ceremonial and historical importance to First Nations. All of this is a result of Section 74 of the Indian Act. And that gives you a little bit of important context into what's going on. Quickly, I want to get to Camille Karamali, who's with us this morning. Camille's been looking at the ongoing financial implications of the blockades in Canada. Hey, Camille. Hey, Alan, I'm just in the parking lot of uh, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, uh, just having interviewed uh, the head of that association. And uh, as you very well may know, two days ago, uh, the four major associations across the country, they banded together to send a letter to Ottawa to urge the government to to address the ongoing protests. So just finished that interview, and uh, he just gave me uh, an in-depth look as to some of the businesses that they overlook that are being heavily hit in their pockets and in their bottom line. Uh, two examples that he gave me just in this interview that just wrapped up was a flag and banners maker in Quebec that has a $100,000 contract on the line. All of their raw materials to make that those uh, flags and banners uh, are in Vancouver, so they're trying to get those materials here so they have a $100,000 uh, contract on the line there. There's also a mid-sized manufacturer in Alberta, and uh, they told me that he uses 100,000 pounds of steel per day, and if this blockade goes on until the end of the month, he told the CFIB, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, that he would have to lay off 400 people. So 
jobs on the line and uh, lots of money being lost. Those are just two examples of dozens, if not hundreds, uh, of businesses losing money because of these blockades. Camille Karamali, a Global News reporter, and we'll see that report tonight on Global News at 5.30. Thanks, Camille. Appreciate that. Thanks, so the, the, the question is, what's the Prime Minister going to do? How do we get out of this? You know, you know what we're in. Oh, what a right pickle we're in. We are in a pickle. Welcome back to the program. Keeping my eye on Twitter this morning, reporters in Alberta reporting that Alberta Premier Jason Kenney has is holding a holding a news conference at a, I believe a hospital, some kind of an infrastructure announcement, but has said uh, in response to questions about the ongoing blockades that Canada is in quote unquote anarchy due to a quote total lack of national leadership from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Oh, what a right pickle we're in! This country is in a pickle. In a new poll suggests that nearly two-thirds of Canadians disagree with the ongoing blockades that are interrupting rail and truck traffic. And three-quarters of Canadians think the federal government needs to act immediately to address quality-of-life issues affecting the country's indigenous people. For more on this polling information, I'm joined by Daryl Bricker, who is CEO of Ipsos. Hi, Daryl. Hey, Alan. We're in a pickle here, and what does the polling tell us about what Canadians think? Well, it's an interesting set of opinions that they have on this, because it's getting actually fairly complicated. So... If you ask Canadians whether or not things need to be done on behalf of the Aboriginal community, particularly to address address their quality of life, seventy five percent of Canadians say yes, we should we should be doing something on that. So what's happened over the space of particularly the last five years is we've seen the desire to do something for the Aboriginal community increase. So that part of the government's agenda has worked reasonably well. They've raised raised awareness of the need to do something. But on the issue of being upset about not making enough progress and deciding to uh, blockade railways and ports and other facilities across the country, Canadians are pretty squarely against that. 61, or actually 63% tell us this is not an, uh, this is not an appropriate way to express your, uh, your displeasure with the government. In fact, Canadians are so much feeling that way, 53% of them say they actually want the police to move in and put an end to this. The the First Nations leadership yesterday in Ottawa said that blockades are really the only weapon in the arsenal of Indigenous people who are trying to protest and trying to get change and in effect change. What what does the polling tell us uh, in terms of, you, you say, you know, we have these two sort of divergent things here where people say, well, yeah, we want to address these big level issues, but yet we don't want the kind of demonstrations that Indigenous people say is the only avenue that they have. And that is the contradiction in all of this. So, uh, yes, they they claim that it's the only way that they can protest, but they haven't made that point to Canadians. They think there's other ways of actually resolving this, and this one is not the one that they uh, they think is appropriate. So the problem that they've got is the more that they push on this, uh, the I expect to see that those numbers saying disagreeing with this as the cost becomes higher and higher are going to get stronger, along with the desire to see. Um, uh, the police move in to do something about this. So unless the government can find a way to negotiate their way out of this in a fairly short period of time, the pressure is going to grow to do something more direct. 
Well, if there is a direct confrontation, that will result in the images that this nation knows so well, the images mm. from Oka, the images of Dudley George from, um, from southern Ontario. And what's your take on whether Canadians will, will stomach that kind of violent confrontation? Uh, they definitely won't like it. And the, uh, the group that will bear the, the most uh, difficulty for all of this will be the government. Because one of the things that uh, uh, governments are required to do in Canada is to provide public order. I mean, it's kind of a primary thing. It's like defending the borders, uh, you know, against foreign attacks or whatever. So uh, providing an environment of public order is something that Canadians see as fundamental to what the government's supposed to do. This is the opposite of that. And having to, uh, you know, move uh, uh, police forces in to deal with this kind of situation and causing harm would be the opposite of that. So they've got a fairly short leash here, I would say, to... Uh, try and find a way to get themselves out of it before uh, Canadians on the other side of this, the, the, as I said before, the, the degree of desire for doing something like, for example, police action will grow. The Prime Minister this morning, and I played this clip a little earlier on the program, uh, really hit home the fact that this was unacceptable, uh, and it was a slight change in tone from his, his address to the House yesterday, which was, you know, much more let's all talk it out, let's all get together, and, and, and that sort of thing. Do you think that the government is seeing the same kind of polling that suggests that there is an increased appetite for some kind of response, more of a hardline response, and they're reacting to that? Uh, uh, if, if they are polling, I don't know that they are. If they would find exactly what we found. Um, any poll that's done, a legitimate poll that's done in, in the way that it should be done, would find the same things that we found. So uh, if they seem to be reacting to that, uh, that probably suggests they are doing something. Daryl Bricker is the CEO of Ipsos. Always great to have you on the program, Daryl. Thank you. Thanks, Alan. Welcome back to the program. Lots to talk about in this next segment, including do you have a trouble at work? Do you, do you have somebody at work, maybe a chatty Cathy type, a Karen that works next to you, uh, and you're just trying to ghost them, but you can't, and you work with them? How do, you, how, do you, how do you handle that? How do you break up with people that you work with? You know, what if you're like a, you know, you're a hermit, you're, you're a social malcontent? We're going to get into that. In a couple of minutes. But first, I want to talk about winter sports and an absolutely horrifying story coming out from Vail, where a 46-year-old man has died of asphyxiation after an accident involving his coat and the chairlift. Essentially what happens, he got on the chairlift and he slipped through the seat. You know, there's that gap there. And then his coat got caught on the chair and then the way he was sort of suspended... It cut off his airway and cut off his air. Just a horrifying story. And I think we all know when we go to big mountains, certainly I do, there is an inherent risk there. You know, largely it is a safe endeavor. But accidents happen on the hill. And sometimes they're not really particularly the fault of anyone. Maybe it's another skier that has hit you, perhaps... It's a fall you take. Where does the liability for all of that lie? 
if you're like me, you just assume that because there's a you know bit of boilerplate legal language on the back of your pass that you buy, that the resort itself, the ski hill, bears no responsibility, has no liability whatsoever if something happens to you, that it's just just by buying the thing, you accept the terms and conditions, and there you go, and unless you can somehow prove gross negligence, that you will have no recourse. Is that true? Well, let's get some perspective on that from Nanish Kotak, who's the founder of Kotak Law and joins me on the line. Hello. Hi, Alan. How are you? I'm well. According to the Canadian Institute for Health Information, there were about 2,000 ski and snowboard injuries in Canada in 2017-2018 that resulted in hospitalizations. Do those people actually have a legal recourse to sue? You know, uh, here we have to look at the waivers. Now, you, know, you spoke about that on the back of a ticket. Um, and they are enforceable. Uh, you know, you've, you really read, look at the wording and uh, make sure you understand it. There was a couple of recent cases in the Ontario Court of Appeal that, that looked at that. Because before the case law was, um, well, maybe the Consumer Protection Act will prevail and you, you can't have these waivers enforceable. But the Court of Appeal upheld the uh, uh, waivers, and, and there are a couple of exemptions where, where a ski resort might not be responsible, and that would be, look, if it clearly never came to the attention of the person buying the ticket, it, um, it wasn't on their ticket, or it was extremely small or worded in a, in a way that uh, was uh, uh, really wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know of its existence. Otherwise, these waivers are going to be hard to get around. Now, you mentioned the word gross negligence, and that really is, you know, something beyond negligence. Was it completely reckless? Were they, you know, for example, they were clearly aware of the danger and had existed for some time um, and had done, you know, conscious decisions to do nothing about it. I think courts may well then, uh, you know, look into the waiver and, and say, hey, it's not going to be applicable. Um, so it is an issue, and and you know, there's a bit of advice for for people out there. You know, we got March break coming up. We got reading week coming up. Um, obviously, look at the waivers and make sure you do a hill that that you know you, you that you can handle. Um, and if you are in an accident, get a copy of the report. You know, take photographs if if you're able to, and keep a record of what happened. Witness names are important, particularly if it's a he said she said about someone hitting. Because Alan, you know, we, we you know we talk about the waiver with respect to the ski resort, but often ski injuries or snowboarding injuries are the result of the negligence of another person running into you. They're inexperienced. They run into you, or maybe they're drinking, and, and you know they sort of lose control in terms of in terms of the uh, you know, the excessive uh, behavior. So it's important to get the identity of people involved because there may well be claims against individuals, and then their home insurance could in fact cover it. Uh, I'm I'm a big fan of uh, Blue Mountain. I was up there quite a bit. I don't have a season's pass this year, but I have in the past. And the scariest place on Blue is Happy Valley, which is this sort of green run feeder where, you know, the the rental crowd and the blue jean wearing skiers, that's where they are. And that is the most terrifying place to be. So what you're saying that is somebody actually does come along and clock me while I'm going down uh, the hill and, you know, I'm in my lane sort of thing, that there is some legal recourse for me? Absolutely. You know, we have to conduct ourselves in a reasonable manner and not be negligent, really, no matter what we do. And, and even in sporting events, there's a certain amount of assumption of risk, uh, you know, in a sporting event. But if somebody is clearly negligent, uh, we're not talking about the ski uh, owner liability, we're talking about individual, uh, they could well be responsible. The key is getting their identity, because likely they'll have uh, home insurance that, that you know, there, there could be a, um, uh, you know, indemnifier uh, for the claim. So, uh, it's just a matter of, you know, being aware, obviously, and if something unfortunate happened, 
witness statements, getting pictures and identity of people, it, 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 it's, it's very important. The other issue that people need to think about, and the cases aren't very clear on this, is liability for ski hills for injuries to minors. You know, the, uh, the ski ticket, parents, you know, buy the ski ticket and they may sign waivers. The real question is, is that going to be enforceable if you have a six or seven year old who is injured due to the negligence of the ski hill? Courts may well say that, look, it's again against public policy for a parent to you know, waive a, um, a claim on behalf of a child um, who really you know, doesn't have the capacity to sign that contract. So that, I think when you're dealing with minors, you're, it's a totally different ballgame than you are when you're dealing with adults who can very well waive away their rights to sue or, or get compensation. Danish Kotak is the founder of Kotak Law. I've learned something today. This is not something that I had really thought about, even though I'm an avid snowboarder, and you know, I'll be out there again on the slopes in a couple of weeks. I, I appreciate uh, your perspective, perspective. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. So keep it safe, especially as you heard the guests say there. March break is coming up. A lot of people be on the hill. We just had, of course, Family Day weekend. That's always jammed on the hills as well. A lot of kids out there. You got to be safe. You got to be safe when you're out there on the snowboard or out there on the ski. All right, let's turn our minds to some social problems and whether or not you have some difficulty at work. I have, I don't know if you know this, but I'm in a bit of a... Oh, what a right pickle we're in. I'm a bit of a, I'm in a big pickle. Because the, I'm not a pickle, I am in a pickle. Because here's the thing, I'm I'm a terribly antisocial person. I don't mean to be, but I'm you know I'm not in that space in work in my workplace anymore where I'm going out and socializing with the kids anymore. I got I got a family and and so now oh, you hey, yeah I know I know I'm an old fella, but I this is this becomes increasingly difficult in workplace politics. And Laura Hensley is our global news online reporter who has filed a piece to globalnews.ca about how to break up with people that you work with or your neighbors, that kind of thing. Hi, Laura. Hi, Alan. This is super dark, by the way. I don't know if you're trying to tell me something. Well, I like you fine. (laughs) It's not you. It's not me. No, it's me. So what, what does this mean you have to break up with a coworker or a neighbor? What do you mean by that? Well, you know, there's people in our lives that we would rather avoid spending time with, whether it's a neighbor who constantly wants to hang out with you and you just don't enjoy their company or a coworker who asks you out after work all the time and you have no interest in being friends with them. You can't just ghost them because you see them on a regular basis. So you have to be more tactful in how you sort of establish those boundaries and quote unquote break up with them. Okay. All right. I, I had a, a neighbor when I was living in an apartment a little while ago who uh, just constantly, you know, did this pigeonhole me in, in the hallway, always wanted me to come over. I was like, I, I didn't want to. Right. You know, so I, I was like, I don't know. What, what do I do? How do I get? What do I do? Right. Well, if it's someone like that, like a neighbor, you're going to see them. You need to sort of uh, maintain a friendly enough relationship that you're not being a complete jerk to them. But you also can use your language and your body language to sort of send a message that you don't have any interest in being more than neighbor friends. So when you see them in the hallway and they try to talk to you, you know, nicely shut down the conversation, you know, keep it very brief, use short sentences, only talk about things. Don't get personal. You're sending these messages to the person and most people can pick up on that and realize, okay, this person is not really interested in engaging with me. So just keep it to the weather and the weather only. Keep it very brief. Yes. See, I think this is something that probably women excel at more because just, you know, always just kind of have to deflect the attentions of men. 
Well, I think that you, I, I guess so. Yeah, it's a skill you certainly develop, but I think. Like, I, it doesn't happen to me a whole lot. You know people what I mean? don't try to talk to you. No, as no, much. Like, I, I, I don't know why people don't come nowhere near me. Well, yes, I think if you, you, you learn the art of small talk, and you can also shut down conversations quite easily when you practice. But if there's people who just don't pick up on that, you know, they're not getting the hint, uh-huh. you might actually have to have a more direct conversation. And so I've spoke to so many experts, and they said, you know, if people don't don't pick up on those hints. You might nicely need to say to them, hey, listen, I don't have time for this conversation. I need to go. Or, hey, listen, you know, uh, I really don't necessarily want to spend more time outside of work fostering this relationship. And that can be a hard thing to say. But if someone is continually persisting, you really do need to make those boundaries clear. You know what I like is uh, I just keep one AirPod in at all times. <laughs> and then I just I'm on a conference call. I'm on a conference. I'm sorry, Laura. I can't talk to you. I just tap your. I'm sorry, I can't okay. talk to you right now. Sorry, uh, I'm very busy. Very, very busy. Very busy. <laughs> That's also one way, I guess, to deflect conversation. <laughs> Don't let the door hit you on the way out. This all seems so fraught with danger because, you, like you say, you're not going to get rid of these people are right there in your life, and you say, "I don't have time for this now." And then you're now suddenly you're me. You're the bad person. I don't think it's about being the bad person. I think you can be kind when you say this. You know, there's nothing wrong with maintaining boundaries with kindness and showing respect. I don't think you need to say, "Listen, Laura, you are driving me crazy. Do not talk to me while I'm making my coffee." You can just nicely say, "Tap the earpod," or nicely say, yeah. um, "The." You- you actually today. came into the kitchen yesterday at Chorus while I was on the phone with an AirPod in. I'm starting to wonder if that was a real conversation I was at all. <laughs> Busted. Laura Hensley, always great to talk to you. Thanks so much Thanks, for coming Alan. in. You can read Laura's piece on globalnews.ca. It is there right now. Hey, did you hear about Tim Hortons, by the way? Did you hear about this Tim Hortons roll up the rim thing? This is also a story that's uh, blowing up online right now. And you can read about it on globalnews.ca. Josh Elliott uh, just uh, filed this one. I think it was Josh. Yeah, it was Josh Elliott. And basically what happens, they've just made their announcement about the new content. It's going to come back. Roll up the rim is coming up. But the rules have changed, and so has the payout. It's going to run for four weeks from March 11th to April 7th. But after so much criticism about litter and problems and cups everywhere, they're only actually going to give out the physical cups for the first two weeks. And then you have to use the app. See, they're trying to force you onto the app for the roll up the rim. So you can basically, when you get a coffee, you can roll up that thing, or you can go on the app and you get two rolls, two virtual rolls. But here is the other thing: the payout has gone down significantly. So the digital and cup prizes for this year: twenty nine point nine million dollars. You know how much it was last year? million. You want to hear about Tim Hortons being in trouble. There's Tim Hortons being in trouble right there. No more, or at least a limited, roll up the rim.